when I was um, when I was 16 years old, I had one of my first jobs. I worked at a variety of places, but one of them was a babysitting gig. Um, when uh, a few down, a few houses down, was a neighbor that had two, uh, three kids, uh, two girls, or twins, and an older boy. And I would uh, sometimes take care of them. Single mom, I would try to help her out, and 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 so sometimes I would babysit and help out, and I would. There's no father in the home, and yes, I'm a 16-year-old guy, but I'm trying to set some sort of boundaries and rules in these homes. And um, so sometimes the mom would work late, and I would put all the kids to bed. And uh, the routine is kind of all over the place sometimes. It's chaotic. And I remember this one particular moment, uh, and again, I have no paternal skills whatsoever as a 16-year-old boy, um, but I'm trying to put uh, so Dylan, the boys, in bed, and then the two girls, Katie and Kelsey, are going to bed. I'm telling them, okay, uh, go ahead and brush your teeth or do whatever you guys do uh, before you guys go to bed. And um, they would go, and one of them would go, and then the other one would kind of run away, and so I'd have to chase one of them. And then, or just be vice versa, and stuff like that. But uh, they went towards the bathroom, and they were started brushing their teeth. And I'm going downstairs because I'm trying to catch um, some sports highlights on ESPN. And and all of a sudden, I'm hearing some like weird noises upstairs. And all I hear is like, "Oh no!" And I'm like, "Oh no!" Here we go. And so I'm like running upstairs to see what's going on. I thought they're going to be in trouble. And here are Katie and Kelsey on top of the kitchen counter trying to brush their teeth. And the bathroom is just flooded. They've turned on all the faucets, the sink, the bathtub. And now it's just like it is coming up to like my ankles. And again, I have no paternal skills whatsoever. But everything inside of me just got just boiled. And I got so angry. And I just yelled. I just these two little great six-year-old girls, and I was like, what are you doing? Like, I asked you to brush your teeth, not make a pool. And they're just there, and all of a sudden, they're just crying. And in that moment, I just kind of sulked and just felt so bad for just kind of yelling at them and pointing the finger at them. And in this moment, I just kind of had a realization, because at that moment, I wasn't even a dad. I was no father figure. I was a 16-year-old guy. But Later on, and, I, and now I look at my dad, and I look at dads all over the place, and even as a Christ follower, we look to God as a father, which is supposed to be a somewhat comforting thing, but yet for a lot of people, it's not. We look to God, and we see God as some sort of a, a authoritarian fing, a figure who points his finger at us and kind of waits for us to, to uh, make a mistake so he can bring some sort of inconvenience into our lives or completely wipe us out. Christianity in the church gets this huge bad rap for this term called the wrath of God. It's this coined phrase that has deterred people from accepting and understanding Christianity, and it has stemmed to a lot of systemic issues and questions that are, you know, impeding us from really answering the true questions of suffering, the problem of evil, and the true love of God. But what if I told you that God isn't mad at you, but he's actually madly in love with you? And I'm not trying to say this in some sort of cheesy, surface-level hype talk. Can I propose to you that there is a deep level of theology, um, an alignment of Scripture, and biblical evidence to support this? And so maybe you've joined us tonight for the very first time, or maybe you've missed a few weeks. But just to kind of recap, you guys, we're in a, a series called When Two Worlds Collide. And we're essentially taking some questions that you have asked us about end times and revelation and God's wrath and kind of compiled them into one series. And that's what we're taking a look at tonight, the wrath of God. We all have this view of who God is. 
Whether you, be, uh, you believe it or not, or whether you are a believer or not, we all have this thought on who God is. As a matter of fact, there's this man, a pastor named A.W. Tozer, who once said, what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. <clears throat> the most important thing about us. Because the way you view God will seep into everything you do, say, and react. So if you don't believe in God, you might have this abstract idea in one sense that he is just this person who soothes people in certain situations. Or maybe you think he's this sadistic, cruel, mean boss who allows bad stuff to happen just for kicks and giggles. If you are a Christian in this room, you're also somewhere on this pendulum. Maybe you think God is just this holy, just, and sovereign Lord. Or you're on the other side of the pendulum where he's just this nice, cozy father figure who's there to coddle your feelings and just bring you on this pleasant roller coaster ride. Where do we get this view from? And for all of us, maybe it could be exposure at some, to some extent to religion. Maybe what culture says. Or maybe it's just wishful thinking. But no matter what, it's super important to get this holistic view of who God is and find that perfect balance on the characteristic that God holds. Because if we don't get a grasp on this, we will be living on a crutch and not fully living the life that God had intended for us to live. Now, we can't put scripture into hierarchy and tell you what's important here and what's more important there. But there is a special portion in the scripture that introduces God for the very first time. The very first time God introduces himself to mankind and humanity. And even more important, it's his self-disclosure. Meaning like he's not just announcing his name, but he's announcing his character and he's announcing his true heart. This man named Moses who's the leader of the Israelites, leading the people from, from um, uh, slavery out of Egypt into the promised land. And then here we have this moment where Moses goes up towards Mount Sinai, takes a detour, receives a Ten Commandments, and then God reveals himself for the very first time in Exodus 34. It says this in the Bible, Exodus 34, 5 and 7. It says, and The Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him, and he called out his own name, Yahweh. The Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfa unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. Their entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations. Okay, so this is a pretty interesting piece of, of, of Bible here. And I want to hit on this line, slow to anger, because it brings really the heart of God to what we need to talk about tonight. And so we're going to break this down to two parts. And the, the first part is that he is very slow to anger, but also he is slow to anger. It is there, it is the real thing. There's this translation called the Aramaic Targum, and when the people were going to exile, they stopped speaking Hebrew and started picking up Aramaic, which kind of made it nice to kind of translate English better. But this is what it says in verse 6 in the translation of the Aramaic Targum. It says, O Lord, O Lord, gracious and merciful God, patient. Listen, the one who makes anger distant and brings compassion near. That's a translation of slow to anger. What a beautiful picture that would kind of encompass us to view God as. That his compassion is near, it is close, it's at your fingertips, and anger, his anger, it is there. 
It's a reality, but it is distant, and it is down towards the horizon. But on the other hand, we can make God angry. It, it is the type of emotion that is there, and when he does get angry, it stops the room and allows people to be in awe of him. Reminds me of this, of this movie um, called Abra- um, Lincoln. And about Abraham Lincoln. And there's this famous scene where Abraham Lincoln's cabin is up late at night. And they're just there bickering and arguing and yelling at each other at 2 a.m. About the passing of the Second Amendment. And Abraham Lincoln's just kind of there in the background. He's just kind of taking it all in. He's breathing slowly. He's a calm presence. He's even-tempered or trying to be. Now he's there for a while. But then all of a sudden there's this moment there's this moment where he just kind of snaps and he sl- slams his hand on the table and just yells, I can't take it anymore. And at that moment, there's kind of this hush in the room. But then also there's this admiration that soon follows it. He's slow to anger. But he's also slow to anger. Anger is an emotion that God possesses. It's something that we don't want to talk about, but we need to. God's anger is literally translated as God's wrath. It's right there, and I'm just going to put it there for you. And here's an example of what it mentions about God's wrath. It says in Psalm 711, it says, God is a just judge, and God is angry with the wicked every day. So pause. Let's break this down for a sec. How often is God angry? Well, apparently a lot. And who is he angry towards? The wicked. The wicked, in its original language, translates to pure evil. And so we have to know that God's anger is not just this tamper tantrum. It's not like our anger, where when, when we get angry, it's kind of out of a wounded ego. No, no, God's anger is a just judge response to a fitting crime. It's a type of emotional response that is fitting to bring back good and order to this world. Also, before I move on, I totally forgot to mention that if you do want the sermon notes, you can go, the media person can put it up there. But there's a QR code. If you want to scan it, you can get all the sermon notes and follow along or just keep it with you. There's a pastor named John Mark Comer that defines God's anger as this. It says, God's anger equals God's unrelenting, unremitting, uncompromising, and steadfast antagonism towards evil in all its forms. You can get him angry. You just really have to work hard at it. But that's not God's default, though. His starting point is compassion and gracious, which means he is slow to anger. And maybe some of you guys just need to hear that. That God is slow to anger because maybe in your mind, God is just ready to pounce on you. That he's this angry, cruel being that's just there to punish you. But like I said at the beginning, God's not mad at you, but he's just madly in love with you. And as humans, as broken societies, we all do stuff. We all make mistakes. And I just need to let you know and remind you, whether it's the first time or the hundredth time, that God's compassion is close to you. It is near you. It is right beside you. But now let's go back to the wrath of God, shall we? In Nahum 1.1, this is what it says. It says, this message concerning Nineveh came as a vision to Nahum, who lived in Elkosh. Now, before we continue, just a bit of context here. If you know a bit about the Bible, um, Nineveh is a city that has been mentioned before. It was mentioned two books earlier in the book of Jonah. And the city of Nineveh is the capital city of Assyria, and it's known for its just barbaric violence and just pure evil. 
Now, long story short, the city came to repentance. The city got saved, and they turned away from their evil ways, and God showed his grace and compassion towards them. God forgave them. But now, we're in the book of Nahum, which is fast-forwarding 150 years later, and their repentance, let's just say it is short-lived. They went back to killing the innocent, going back to uh, sexual perversion, wickedness, and evil once again. And now, I think God has had enough. But let's read on, shall we? Nahum 1, 2, 3, verses 2 and 3. It says, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemy. Listen here. The Lord is slow to anger but great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. So we see some common denominator vocabulary that was mentioned earlier in Exodus. Skip on down to verse 7 and 8, and it says, The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him, but with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into the realm of darkness. So we've established that the default status of God is God's compassion. Compassion is near and he is slow to anger. But there will come a time, or there sometimes comes a time, where God looks and says, enough is enough. You're wrecking havoc and damaging my earth. And I've waited for you time and time again to come to me. So I need to stop the sin. I need to stop the violence. I need to stop the injustice. But get this, Nineveh wasn't wiped out with lightning bolts wasn't wiped out with just a meteor. No, it was, it was destroyed by just humankind. It was destroyed by the Babylonian Empire a decade after. But guess what? That's still a form of God's wrath. Now, there are a few moments in Scripture where God will intervene himself in terms of God's wrath. There's a couple examples. One, in the book of Samuel, um, they're transporting the Ark of the Covenant, which is symbolic of God's presence in a tangible form. Okay, no one's supposed to touch it, but they weren't taking it seriously. At one point, they hit a pothole, not being careful, and this guy named Uzzah touched it and carried it. And at that moment, because of his disobedience, God's anger burned against him and struck him down dead right there. Or, in the New Testament, this couple named Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias lied to Peter and to the church about selling his property and giving money towards the poor. What happens? He falls down dead right there on the spot. Then a few hours later... His wife comes in, guess what? Tells the exact same lie. Guess what? She falls dead right there beside him. Not really the Romeo and Juliet we were expecting, but we have to understand that's also the exception to the rule, okay? That's the exception to the rule. 99% of the time in the Bible, God brings something called passive wrath, which means he does not take his physical act to intervene himself, but that is his judgment, There are times where God says, okay, have it your way. And so he takes his hand away of blessing and covering over your life. Steps back and says, okay, now you're just on your own. Like with Nineveh, he released them from his covering and allowed them to die through the Babylonian empire. But God is ready to heal, always. He's ready to forgive, Always. He's ready to rebuild because he does not want you or I to live with an apathetic heart and allow our heart to be warped with indifference that we cannot give and receive love again. Now, 
The term God's wrath isn't just found in the Old Testament. I think people have created this caricature of God to be this mean old grump that's waiting to zap everybody in the Old Testament, but Jesus is just pretty much Mr. Rogers with a beard. But let's take a look. And this is what it says in Matthew 21, verse 10. It says, The entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar as he entered. Who is this? they asked. And the crowds replied, It's Jesus, the prophet of, from Nazareth in Galilee. So Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out all the people buying and selling animals for sacrifice. <clears throat> he knocked over the tables over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. He said to them, the scriptures declare, my temple will be a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. Now in that time of Israel, okay, they are not living in what we have the, Old, the New Testament. We have the New Testament today, but back then they were still living in Old Testament times, meaning they were living off of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Okay, now when people come uh, they would come far and wide to be right and atone for their sins and make an offering or a sacrifice before God to atone for their sins. So they would come from far away and bring in a lamb, but that lamb has to be without defect. The problem is that at the temple, there's an inspector that will take a look and, but says, oh, sorry, that lamb is defective, but we have a lamb that's been pre-approved by the priesthood, but they would charge just an uh, a, a absurd amount of money for that lamb. Or if you're coming from really far away and you would only come with money, the temple people would say, oh no, I'm sorry, we can't accept Roman currency here. We can only accept temple currency. And they would charge an absurd amount of money for the exchange rate. So you see what they're doing here? They're just taking what the temple protocol has been and they're just manipulating it and abusing it. And so now Jesus is seeing this and now he is just livid. He is mad. He's ticked off, and it says that he made a whip out of cords and started flipping tables and chasing these people out of the temple. We don't teach the story in Sunday school, people. Like, we only see the Jesus in the flannel graph of him holding a little lamb and him hugging people. We don't see him on a flannel graph holding whips. But the story shows up in all four Gospels, which means, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, It shows up in all four Gospels, which means, hey, pay attention. This means something. As a matter of fact, it says in the first three, we call the Synoptic Gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, before, right, right before he gets arrested towards the cross. And some scholars believe that this was the reason of why he got arrested, actually. Now, you have to understand that this is planned out by Jesus. Don't think that Jesus just came into the temple and just had a moody afternoon and just threw himself into a tamper tantrum. No, Jesus is smart. He's intelligent. He's been to the temple hundreds of times, just alone in the three years of his public ministry. And for three years, he's been calling these people who's been abusing and manipulating the temple protocols to call them back to, to make the establishment right again, back to the right way, back to the side of Jesus, back to Yahweh, what they call them, back to the side of the person who's slow to anger and compassion is near that God. But after three years of giving them chances over and over and over again, he is saying, okay, enough is enough. As I finish off tonight, I need you to understand 
that we think God's love and God's anger are at odds with one another. And I don't mean to sound harsh when I say this, but if that's your thinking, then we don't understand God's love or God's anger. Because God's anger flows out of his love. And if you're not angry from time to time, then that love does not mean as much. The scriptures teach us that God is love. That is his character. That is his attribute. It is the essence of who he is. Does the scripture teach us that God is anger? No. But are there times that God gets mad? Yes. But his anger is a response to his love. We have to understand that. Now this story, what we call the Bible, the word of God, it's a preview of what's to come. Not in terms of trying to put fear into people, but actually hope. There will come a day that King Jesus will come back. And he will come back and he will say, enough is enough. No more. I will right all that is wrong. I will heal all that is broken. And as Exodus 34 says, I will not leave the guilty unpunished. One of my favorite pieces of scripture in the entire Bible is found in Revelation 21, 3 and 4. This is what it says. It says, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes. And there'll be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. This is a vision from John of what is to come. This is, as Christ followers, what we anticipate and look forward to. Not something to be scared of, but something to be excited about and something to be hopeful about. God's wrath gets a bad rap and people think that's who God is. But hot take, I don't think we only need God's wrath, but you and I actually crave it. We crave it. You want to know why? Because we crave for injustice to be wiped away. We crave for violence and racism and wars to stop. We crave for that rapist and the pedophile and the scammer and the murderer to receive their consequence. There will be a day, friends, where there'll be no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain, no more depression, no more anxiety, no more cancer, no more loneliness, and no more brokenness. All those tears that you and I have cried will be bottled up not only because of God's love, but because of God's wrath to the response of that. And for the believers in this room and those who live in the ways of Jesus, this is the biggest hope we have. And I don't know where you're at, but maybe on one hand, you feel broken. You feel you experience that injustice or you feel like you completely fail time and time again. But I want to remind you that, hey, God's compassion is not far away from you. God's compassion is actually right next to you. It is near you. Hey, God's compassion is his default setting, and he just wants to shower you with that, with his compassion, with his grace, and with his mercy. And I'm going to pray for you for that. And for others, hey, maybe you just need to see God as a whole for who he is. We need to stop looking at God and picking apart certain characteristics of who God is and who he is not. Stop it. We need to take him at his word. We need to take him in scripture. Don't put your projection on who God is in terms of him living out your North American dream. God is God. 
He is holy, he is sovereign, he is a ruler, and he is a king of kings of our lives. But he is a good, good father as well. But we need to live in that balance. And so my prayer for you is that you would see him as that. A good, good father, but also as a God who is just, holy, and righteous over your life. And that we would live in that balance. God's wrath is only a response to the things that he loves. And he loves you. He loves you. He wants to have a relationship with you. And he wants to bring you onto this journey towards heaven. And he will one day wipe everything wrong away. And we can finally step into that freedom in eternity. Sound good? Let me pray for you. And then Pastor Jeff's going to come on up and he's going to lead us into some baptisms. I know it's kind of weird pairing God's wrath with baptisms, but I just felt like we just needed to do it. But anyways... Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you just for your word. I thank you for your love. I thank you for, honestly, your wrath as well. That is the response to the things that is wrong in this world. Because you are a God who cares. You're you're God who wants to bring us into good things, but you're also a God who wants to remove the evil and suffering that we are experiencing. So God, I pray that in the moments of where we're living in that tension, where we don't know what to think, I pray, God, you would just remind us of who you are not a projection of who we want you to be, but strictly who you are described to be in your word. And so, Father, I pray for everyone in this room that maybe feels like they're coming in with this weight, they're coming in with this burden, that they're just kind of like tired and, or, or angry or indifferent, or maybe their faith has grown cold or, and, and not, no more passion or this apathy and indifference there. God, I pray you would just maybe spark a brand new just set of passion, that you would just— kind of um, set something inside of our souls that would just be so overwhelming and that would just be exuding out of us by the time we leave here tonight. So we dedicate everything into your hands, Jesus, knowing and trusting that you will be able to take care of everyone in this room. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.